Well, it's it's November, and uh, we've talked about in this program before about how uh, we expect there'll be a second assassination of John F. Kennedy on the 50th anniversary of his murder, which is, of course, next year. Um, it's a topic that's near and dear to our hearts, and uh, to discuss that on today's program, we're going to bring on an author, a researcher, and an educator who we, I believe, have never had in the show before, uh, but it's high time we did. Jim Diogenio, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you, Doug. Before we do anything else, Jim, I want to note that uh, you've written a book, Destiny Betrayed, a fine uh, contribution to the um, the discussion of the JFK murder, and I understand that a, a revised version is coming out this month? Saying it's a revised and expanded version is, is really not accurate, because it's actually a completely rewritten... I'd say 90% of it has been completely rewritten, okay? So what I did is I incorporated all the, as much as I could, the new releases from the Assassinations Record Review Board, all right, to update it. And I expanded certain sections, for example, on Kennedy's foreign policy, which I believe to be very, very important uh, to the assassination, all right? And so the book is, I would say, twice as long, all right, as it was, and almost all the new length is is essentially uh, new new material that I've incorporated into the the narrative. Whatever the failings of the ARB, which is the Assassination um, Records Review Record Board, Review Board yeah. that was declassifying all these documents from 1994 to 1998. Whatever the failures of the ARB, and and there were quite a few, you know, they did get a lot of new stuff out there about the. Jim Garrison investigation, which is the focus of, of, of my book. There was a lot, a lot of new stuff out there. They didn't get everything because I've seen from some of the notices at the, at the archives, um, there's, a, for example, there's a lot of stuff on Clay Shaw that has not been declassified. There's like about 40 documents on really? Clay Shaw yeah, that have not been declassified. And from what I saw, the title cards on those documents essentially deal with the Shaw trial and the interaction of his lawyers with the Justice Department, which is one of the things I I really put a lot of in my new book, because this is something that had been completely hidden, well, almost completely hidden, you know, up until the time of the ARB, you know, the, the extensive ties between Shaw's lawyers, the Justice Department, the CIA, and the FBI, which, by the way, as you'll see in my book, is something that these guys, his lawyers, always, always denied. Let's pause a minute to remind our listeners, some of whom uh, are much younger than us and not as familiar with some of the the instances, the, the particulars in this case. Let's go back to Oliver Stone's movie. This was based on the investigation of New Orleans DA. Jim Garrison into the Kennedy case took place in 1967, 1968. It led to the only trial uh, ever related to the, the assassination of JFK, that that of Clay Shaw. And this is, of course, uh, uh, I'm keen to read your new book because this is a prominent feature in the original book, Destiny Betrayed. The film was based on Jim Garrison's uh, memoir on the trail of the assassins, all right, which was published in 1988. Okay, And then Stone... Oliver bought the rights to the book, and he incorporated Jim Marr's book, Crossfire, which is a much wider view of the Kennedy assassination. 
you know, he put together a film that is pretty much wider than Garrison's book, all right? What I did in, in my book is, the first edition at least, I tried to put the whole thing into a historical perspective, which I kind of thought was lacking in other books. But in the new rewrite of the book, I go much further with these declassified documents, you know, which in some ways are, are, are really kind of startling. For example... Yeah, please. tell. I, I'm, I'm keen to hear some of these, uh, these examples. One of the people that we were going to talk about tonight, um, Gordon Novell, who passed away, um, what, about three weeks ago? Or yeah, something, something like that. Something like that? Right. Okay. Um, Gordon was a... Um, his, he was an electronics wizard, all right? And this is why the CIA hired him uh, to work in the Bay of Pigs invasion, all right? And it turns out that after the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, Gordon was rehired by no less than Alan Dulles to infiltrate Garrison's investigation. And one of the reasons that Dulles hired Gordon was because of those precise electronic skills. Because once Gordon uh, infiltrated Garrison's investigation, he wired the whole offices for sound. So okay. they, they, they had a bug in the office the whole right. time. And it's really funny because when the movie came out, <laughs> when the movie came out, people said, oh, come on, that didn't really happen. Okay, well, yeah, actually, it, it, it did happen. Yeah, there's a scene in the movie okay. that shows them finding a bug in the office. Yeah. Right. Well, that was the first bug was by Gordon Novell. But then later on, the FBI also wired his office through the telephone company. All right? So there was actually, that didn't happen once. It happened twice. <laughs> wow. So if anything, Stone kind of underplayed that, that aspect of it. All right. All right. And so then when uh, Garrison found out what Gordon was actually doing, uh, he called him before the grand jury. The day he was supposed to appear, two lawyers showed up. Two lawyers showed up and said that uh, Gordon was out of town. He was not trying to avoid the subpoena and he would be back to New Orleans uh, in Duke in just a few days. Well, Novell never came back to New Orleans, okay? And so where did he go? He went to a little town outside of Langley, which, of course, is the headquarters of the new CIA, all right? And he, he, began, he took a phony polygraph test, okay? And he began to denounce Garrison from any newspaper or magazine. And by the way, we know that there were many, many of these writers, so-called writers, who Gordon employed, because I found a letter that he had written to a friend of his, saying that he had worked with dozens of these writers, including the late James Phelan. You know, and this began Alan Dulles's attempt at denouncing Garrison through the press. And this was a very successful effort on the CIA's behalf, because this, of course, made it easier for these governors, which I've also written about in the book, to go ahead and turn down extradition requests, the various extradition requests that Garrison made. All right, but it went beyond that because the CIA 
then began working with judges. If you can believe this, it's absolutely true, and I have the documents in my book to prove it. They began to work with judges so that the extradition request would never reach the witness or the suspect. So you understand why they did this, because once the witness or the suspect is served with the extradition request, he has to show up or he's in contempt of court. Okay? All right? Well, the CIA worked with the judges who would get the request from the other court and then turn it back so that it never... For instance, one of the guys that Garrison wanted was Alan Dulles. Because he wanted to find out exactly what happened with the Warren Commission. All right? Well, that was the judge interceded and, re- and turned the request back. Another guy he wanted was Wesley Liebler, who was also a lower uh, Warren Commission junior counsel. Yeah. Because he wanted to know exactly what did you see on David Ferry. You were there, guys, in, in New Orleans. Tell me what you found is so innocent about David Ferry, because we didn't find him to be very innocent at all. Okay? And so that one was turned around also. Okay? Yeah. So this is one, this is one, of, this is one of the techniques the CIA used to tie Garrison in knots. All right, and then we now actually have the documents on this. Well, I, I'm I'm keen to see where you, where this is all, how this all ties together. There's a lot of stuff we've been asking questions about for 40 years, and they seem to be trickling out bit by bit. Exactly. Getting back to Gordon Novell, he was then safe housed in Columbus, Ohio, and from there is when he began to cooperate, you know, with all of these um, newspapers and magazines you know, completely smearing Garrison's reputation, all right? And um, when Garrison did his famous interview in Playboy, which I think was in the fall of 1967, the CIA, especially James Angleton, requested that Gordon sue Playboy magazine. Gordon didn't want to do it, but Angleton pushed him into it because Garrison came off pretty well in that interview. All right, and so they were dying to go ahead and sue him, okay, to make it sound like he was lying in the interview. Well, Angleton wanted him to do it. Hoover did not want him to do it, okay? Hoover did not want him to do it. The reason being Hoover didn't want him to do it is because he thought that this would, could be a way that Garrison would find out that the FBI had wired his office through the process of this lawsuit. So Angleton gave Gordon pictures, supposed pictures, of, of Hoover and Tolson in, as they say, in flagrant delecto. That's right. Gordon Novell was the one that came forward to Jack Anderson with this story about Tolson and Hoover. I'd forgotten right. that. Right. Those were given to him by Angleton to intimidate Hoover. These are just some of the things that were swirling around the garrison thing that we really didn't know exactly how they fit in together or why. You accept that story about Hoover and Tolson? You think that's uh, that's pretty pretty well established? Well, I don't know if those pictures are real. Okay, I don't know if those pictures are real. With with Angleton, you never knew because the guy could fake anything. I kind of suspect that they did have that kind of relationship. 
A lot you know. of people do. <laughs> right, yeah. Joan, yeah. let me ask you about a couple of people who have passed on here. We talked about uh, a couple of shows ago. We, we were talking about them. Arlen Specter, senator from Pennsylvania, and investigator Gaten Fonzie both passed in the last month. Gaten Fonzie is a name probably most people have never heard of. He was an investigator for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I want to I want to return to him in a second because Arlen Specter, of course, is almost a household name. He uh, he was a senator from Pennsylvania. He the obituaries refer to him as a man who sort of crossed party lines, a man who was a moderate Republican, uh, unheard of in the modern era, was pro-choice and yet a Republican. Most of the uh, most of the obits are pretty laudatory, but I think if you're familiar with the JFK case, his reputation isn't quite as, uh, as stellar. Well, if you take a look at what Specter did, I don't think anybody could ever excuse what the guy did in the Warren Commission, because to give you just one example, he was the guy who was the lawyer responsible for both the ballistics and the medical evidence in the JFK case. Yes. Most lawyers will tell you. In a murder case, especially a murder case that's done by gunshot wound, all right, under the circumstances that this thing was done under, the most important witnesses would be the doctors who did the autopsy. Well, one of the doctors who did the autopsy was a guy named Jay Thornton Boswell. When Specter called him before the Warren Commission, after he got rid of the preliminary questions about, you know, can you please introduce yourself and what are your qualifications, he asked him 13 questions. <laughs> 13 questions. Yeah. All right. Very thorough. Now, anybody like yourself who knows what a labyrinth, you know, what a rubric's cube the medical evidence is in the JFK case, would understand that is absolutely ludicrous. You couldn't even begin to really get into this stuff, even if you asked 100 questions. <laughs> if I could jump in, Jim, having read a lot of the Warren Report, a lot of the evidence uh, later on as, as a physician, I was quite startled by a lot of this, as, as you're describing. The, the most startling thing to, bite, to me about Arlen Specter is that if you go back to 1964, uh, there was a viewing of the Zapruder film in two locations, one in Dallas or one in Texas that in it included Governor John Conley, the man also struck that day. The doctors there were asked to look at the film, and the doctors that conducted the autopsy in Maryland in, in a second viewing were asked to look at it. And they were asked, when do you think the men were hit by bullets? And there seemed to be agreement in both locations by all the doctors and, and, and Governor Conley that Conley is struck and the fatal bullet then hits Kennedy. Everyone believed there were three shots, three separate woundings, based on the medical evidence and the film evidence. But there was a problem that Arlen Specter seemed to have solved for the Warren Commission, was that when they did an examination of the, the alleged murder weapon, they found out that you couldn't work the bolt fast enough to hit Kennedy, as it appears he struck on film, and then hit Conley, as it appears. So it was Specter's role to concoct the famous single bullet theory. That's about correct, because when the FBI did the testing of the, because in case your listeners don't know this, the Manneker Connell rifle that was allegedly used in the assassination is what you call a manual bolt-action rifle. In other words, it's not an automatic rifle or a semi-automatic rifle. Every time you fire a shot, you have to open up the breech, you have to eject the shell, and cock in a new bullet, and then slam down the breach. So when the FBI did these tests, 
they said, well, look, it takes a minimum of 2.25 seconds, you know, to go ahead and reload this rifle. Well, when they looked at the reactions on the Zapruder film, they said it looks like about 1.6 seconds. Okay, right. so Oswald could not have gone ahead and reloaded this rifle in time for And so then that is when the urgency began to be felt about, well, wait a second, we're going to have to have one bullet do double duty here. Right. Okay. And they had to conclude so, that Governor Conley, he must have had a delayed reaction. A delayed reaction. <laughs> Even though he was struck in the chest by a bullet that broke his ribs. In other rib. words, he didn't really feel the bullet when it first hit him. <laughs> By the way, Jim, a woman—the testimony that's always uh, been been ignored, I think, or, or not given the uh, the weight that is due—was that of Nellie Conley. She was sitting next to her husband, and she very clearly told everyone, till the day she died, she heard the shot. She turned and saw the president struck by a bullet. She then heard the shot and saw her husband struck by a second bullet, which Conley was always adamant that that's what happened as well. Very compelling right. evidence of the single bullet theory. On that evidence alone is probably wrong. I, yeah, I, I would say the Conley testimony was pretty powerful. Conley insisted always, you know, he was hit by a separate bullet because he said he heard the first shot. And, and Conley, of course, was a very experienced hunter and rifleman. We could talk about the single bullet theory all night. Well, we okay. won't. And I'm not, it, by the way, it, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> I know you we can. We actually talk about the single bullet theory for at least two hours. Let, let's instead okay. just cut to the chase and note that in the movie JFK, <laughs> the the character uh, Kevin Costner playing um, playing Jim Garrison refers to, um, I guess the word is an ambitious Philadelphia attorney, <laughs> and and how he concocted this theory. And of course, um, he was an ambitious young Philadelphia attorney, and concocting the single bullet theory. I think, didn't hurt Arlen Specter's career one bit. No, n n not at all. He went right, right up to the mountain in the Republican Party, okay, and he eventually became, you know, what he wanted to become, which was a senator from Pennsylvania. And he held that position for, was it five terms? I think so. Let's, let's mention a name that I, I don't want to give too short a shrift to, Gaten Fonzie, not a household name, but a man that did some pretty good work investigating the, uh, the case when the House opened up its own separate investigation back in the 1970s. And this is going to lead us in a segue right into the Bill O'Reilly book, which I know you've written an essay on. But uh, tell us a little bit about Gaten Fonzie. What's so odd about this little discussion we're having is that what most people don't know is that Fonzie knew Spectre because Fonzie worked in Philadelphia as a reporter for Philadelphia Magazine. And when the Warren Commission report came out, Gaten Fonzie read Vincent Solandria's um, brilliant two-part essay in Liberation Magazine, which I'm almost certain was the very first long essay exposing the ballistics and medical evidence fraud of the Warren Commission that actually used the volumes. Because, understand, the report came out in September of 1964. But the 26 volumes of evidence did not come out until October yes. of 1964. Yes. Okay? So, in other words, all these headline stories in September telling us about how thorough the it was. Warren Commission yeah. was the greatest homicide investigation in the history of mankind, <laughs> you know, that the New York Times wrote and the Washington yeah. Post wrote, 
None of these reports ever had the evidence in front of them. And now what makes that even more important is if you read the Warren Commission report, it's 888 pages long, and it has 6,000 footnotes to it. Yeah. Well, Salandria actually wrote his essay with the volumes of evidence, which is 26 volumes of evidence. So he actually started to look this stuff up. Okay, and he was the first guy to expose this thing as being, you know, science fiction. You know, he actually traced the path of this miraculous single bullet trajectory, and then he actually put it together with all the conflicting testimony, you know, in the volumes. Fonzie read this thing, and he said, oh, my God, could this possibly really be true? Okay, and so... He says, I think I'm going to go talk to Arlen Specter about this. Okay, now, when he, and when he talked about this meeting he had with Specter, he said, every time I'd ever talked to Arlen Specter before, the guy was absolutely articulate, loquacious, confident, okay, never at a loss for words, okay, yeah. utterly and completely certain of everything he was saying, just like you would think a DA would be in a big city. So yes. he says, when I went to meet Spectre this time, and I began to pepper him with questions about this trajectory of this single bullet theory, I was astonished. I had never heard this guy ever hem and haw <laughs> and qualify himself <laughs> and stutter, okay, and, and be at a loss for words. There were times where we would go five seconds, he wouldn't say anything. I want to refer our listeners as we to wrap this up to, to your essay, which is on the web, titled Bill O'Reilly's Outdated Killing Kennedy. It's a fine piece, Jim. Look forward to your new book when it comes out. And I want to just add that one of the persons that added to the discussion at the end of, of, of the, um, the piece was someone who said, I was Bill O'Reilly's photographer, or his cameraman, when he was down there in... Um, to, to try and track down George DeMorne. Let me tell you, Bill O'Reilly thought there was a conspiracy back then, no matter what he says now. I, I, I kind of agree with that. Jim, it's been a pleasure speaking to you once again. We're going we're gonna to be talking about this topic in the next uh, 13 months, and I'm sure we'll have you back in the wake of your book. And, uh, and, and again, uh, the, its name is? Destiny Betrayed. The, the website is ctka.net. All right, Jim DiGenio, always a pleasure, and uh, we'll be talking again. Okay. I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.